turning your passion into your profession. I, when your back's up against the wall, Rob, I, there was nothing else for me to turn to. So I am really excited about this next session. Someone has become a dear friend of mine, Matt Fidesz. We met on Clubhouse and Matt is multi-skilled, multi-talented and multifaceted. But if you were to try and simplify Matt Fidesz, he would be the entrepreneur who's got the biggest martial arts franchise in the world. Like, if you prorate his business, pound for pound, dollar for dollar, what a competitor just sold out for, that's smaller than his, that would value his company from between 120 and $200 million. So, that, you know, that's big time. Big time entrepreneur, biggest martial arts franchise in the world by a mile. And then you've got Matt Fidesz, who was Michael Jackson's bodyguard for a decade. And so I want to give you about 50% of each, because apparently he's had some secret liaisons with Britney Spears. And I need to ask him if this is true. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a whole host of other shit on him I've got here that I want to ask him about. So if it's okay with you, here's how we're going to do it. The first half's going to be the Michael Jackson era and area and some of the crazy but more fun shit is done. And the second half's gonna be business, the entrepreneur of Matt Fidesz, which not enough people know about Matt in that world because he is a super successful entrepreneur, so privileged to know him. So please, can you all stand up? Please be upstanding on your feet and a massive round of applause for Mr. Matt Fidesz! So it's my 10 year anniversary today with my wife. And this is the key, you gotta work on your relationship as much as you do your business. So if you'll do a video for me saying happy anniversary, Monique, then I'm guaranteed to keep her happy and I'll get laid when I get home. <laughs> <laughs> this is not normally my style of event, by the way, because I run a martial arts organization and I've got some of my team over here used to me calling me master for this, but at the moment, there's gonna be a different side. Okay, so everyone say, Monique, happy, happy anniversary, Monique, then I'll get laid tomorrow, you ready? <laughs> Okay, hi, Monique, got a message for you. Happy Thanks, everyone. <laughs> I, might, I might get it twice for that, actually. <laughs> right, let me turn my phone off. Okay, Rob, feels like I'm with Piers Morgan. I'm not, ner I'm not nervous at all. Right, so part one, the Michael Jackson side of Matt Fides, part two, the entrepreneur side of Matt Fidesz. So before we start, you knew Michael Jackson probably as well as anyone outside of his family. So we have to go there with all the allegations of Michael Jackson and what he apparently is and has done. Are they true? Let's just get straight into it, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I simply wouldn't associate myself with anybody. I run a children's organization with thousands and thousands of kids all over the world. And I would not associate myself with a man who was, who was uh, anything like that. The, the truth of the matter is he was into women. He had a problem with women. He didn't have a problem with little boys. But when you're, when you're five years old, you, he was signed to Motown, which I'm sure a lot of you've heard about. He was brainwashed to not show your relationships because it will kill your fan base. And the Jackson 5 got married, Tito Jackson, Michael was crying. He was horrified. If all the fans were going to leave, there'd be no more Jackson 5. So that was his mentality. It kind of changed towards the last few years of his life when he was considering showing the public. But he just knew by keeping everyone guessing as he gazed, he's straight. Why is he wearing makeup? Why has he got one glove? Why is his trousers too short for him? By the, the way, that's fashion now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I used to, sometimes I used to say, Michael, don't put that mask on your face. And why you got tape around your finger for you? Look like a fucking idiot. And I've got to walk down this, this press conference and then meet with a business meeting. And he says, uh, keeps the fuzzle dozzle going, guarantees me the front pages the next few days. And it, it always, always fascinated me because behind the doors, he just took off the tape and took off the, put a pair of jeans on. And it was hard for you to believe, but he was relatively normal, other than we can't, couldn't go or do anything. It's just a genius. Like he couldn't go out. So he used to read three or four or five non-fiction books per week and he always he, he um, always was studying constantly trying to improve his craft in the middle of the night the other staff would say to me they couldn't find mr jackson then i'd find him alone in a hotel studio and he'd be there dancing and working on his moves three or four hours 
his moves, his dance moves. And he is a very, very loyal friend. He's godfather to my oldest daughter. And um, for me, I just thought it was normal, 18 years old, to be hanging around with Michael and, and his, his inner circle of friends, which actually impacted my whole career to make me the man I am today. But no, he's the most caring, genuine man ever. The, the child thing was the easiest thing to attack him with because he, he wanted to build something to, for things like Make-A-Wish Foundation where terminal children who have got this last wish to make something happen. So he, that was his thing, giving back. And his mother had a big impact on that, that always you should give back for his huge success. So he built Neverland, not so much as a home, but for, for um, a way to have literally tens of thousands of children were bust into there per year and we used to have a running joke with Michael. He, he used to cost him about a million and a half a month to run. And he was never at Neverland. But he did it because of the, the kids. His own children couldn't even go on the, on the rides in the amusement park. They were allowed two or three hours per week. Behind the house, he had like a normal, what you, if you go to a park, slide and swings and so on. But you'll never get shown that because they just want you to believe in narrative bullshit. And the, the machine, the Rob, exactly him. And when documentary came out which had been proven to be not true leaving Neverland with those two guys accusing him which I knew the same age as us actually um, the Daily Mail in America one of the journalists he says oh we want to do a story and we're happy for you to defend him I said that's fine but I want you to interview his girlfriend at the time and he said we know about her but it goes against the narrative and the editor won't have it. I said, what do you mean? You know about her? Said, yeah, we know about her. Of course we do. We've been following the paparazzi around. We've got pictures, but it goes against the narrative of him being a child molester. I just said, oh, forget it. Just, just couldn't win. And because he's not here to defend himself, what we call a personal brand, back then he called Image. So my other friend, it sounds like a name dropping sometimes. It's just my weird world. But like Simon Cowell, when you see him, he's always wearing the same outfit, isn't he? The same white so he's kind of worked out, I think off the back of Michael too, that when Michael wore that, those crazy clothes, that was his image, that was his creation. Today we'd call that personal branding. We've got a friend like that who wears some very weird stuff sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, and I've got two friends for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, had, uh, I had this present turn up and um, there's these pair of shoes. I live in Devon, a pair of shoes. That, Rob bought me. It came only only Rob could have bought me, and they got like these studs coming out. It's like them, but ten times worse. <laughs> and if I wore if I wore them in Devon, I don't know what would happen. But <laughs> I get away with it in London. I wore them in London, but yeah. But no, that's personal brand image. Now the issue was back then we never had social media. Facebook was never around. So when he died, I think Facebook was just about to create. We had MySpace. He was just working out email. He didn't embrace the digital age. He was very much against that, about the downloads and, and um, transferring his music to um, digital downloads. Will I Am tried to convince him to do that, but he was still he still thought he could beat Thriller. His own competition was himself, and the problem he had, the problem he had as well, is the the ability to to do to, to embrace social media, and in a way, I'm glad he went before social media kicked off, so I don't think he could have handled that. But at the same time, he could have slammed down every rumor straight away, just like Elon Musk does and Donald Trump in an instant. But it was the, what we're experiencing now, all this stuff that's come out after he's, he's died, and I explained to you last night, there's a law around the world, it's only a couple of countries doesn't apply to, you cannot defame a dead person. So, so if Rob passed away, I could say anything, anything I want about Rob. There's nothing his family couldn't assume me, and that's the way the law is. So all these documentaries you keep coming out, scandal and stuff, and you've heard the same from Rob, fear screams louder when it's dying. Mainstream media is struggling, and they need to go with scandal and big names and people who can't sue them, i.e. dead people. And so there's another stupid documentary coming out Wednesday night now about his Michael Jackson Zoo and how he abused and neglected his animals at the zoo. It's Ross Kemp is presenting it. So it's on prime time, nine o'clock on ITV. That's be ridiculous, but that's what the world's come to now. But he was the most caring, loving guy in the world. Now he didn't abuse kids, and um, you know the, the, he was into women in a big way. And I got some of my my team here met the family and stuff. And he was normal, but he made himself be a, a mystery because he used to say to us, "Matt, keep my life the greatest show on earth." And he flipping did that all right. Twelve years later, and we're still talking about him. Wow. 
That was the first question. <laughs> it's quite a hard question to hit me with when you want me to ah, talk about it. It's good. So a couple of things. I love the part Matt said. I tried to give you a little nod that he can, he's, the, his biggest competition is with himself. I think if you took that away and you forgot everything else, you have just paid your five pounds a month. I think it's definitely worth it because we're all competing with other people, but we're not on a level playing field. None of us compete, can compete with each other because we've got a different life. So competing with yourself, I think, is great. The next thing is um, I am actually very fascinated by people who've built an image or a personal brand. And if you do want to become a creator and you want to leverage social media and you want to build a personal brand and you want to turn your passion into your profession, which I guess is many of you, I definitely recommend you study them too. So Michael Jackson, I think, is a fascinating person to study because he clearly knew how to get people to remember him and talk about him. Uh, I think if you watch Andy Warhol's, the documentary that's out on Andy Warhol, Andy Warhol's life was a great mystery. And Andy Warhol's art was Andy Warhol. Alexander McQueen, who's my favorite fashion designer, who I homage to every time by wearing his clothes, was one of the most troubled in individuals ever, but I think really understood how to be memorable. And he, he said after one of his um, shows, and his shows attracted a lot of criticism, and he said, I don't care if people love me or hate me, I just want them to feel something. And that stayed with me and, you know, I wear the, the clothes, not just because of how they look, but because of what they mean. And Michael Jackson was probably one of the biggest disruptors in that regard. And I've learned a lot about that from Matt, but I would have never known had I not known Matt. So, okay, right, Matt, where do we go from here? Let's actually move a bit into the business element and then come back. Thanks um, for that. <laughs> so... It's funny that Matt says, I just thought it was normal at 18 to hang around with Michael Jackson and his inner circle. Oh, <laughs> I don't think that's normal. Um, and you, you, I mean, you were hanging around billionaires at 18 years old. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Michael Jackson, was Michael Jackson a billionaire? Yeah, multi-billionaire. His Beatles cat, which everyone's probably heard of before that he owned, that was worth three or four billion. Is it, is it true he bought M&M's back catalogue? Yeah. Do you know why? No, tell us. Okay, so that's a lie. I do know why. I just wanted to set you up for this one. I love this story. <laughs> yeah, Eminem did a, a music video. Some of you were just like, oh, this song's called now. Is there any Eminem fans here? No? Yeah. Something feed or something like that. And he dressed up as Michael and he did some lines like, I don't touch little boys like Michael, something like that. And he's bouncing. Like, you remember that one? And he's bouncing as a lookalike. Uh, Michael Jackson lookalike on the, in this music video. And Michael actually really admired Eminem. They didn't know each other. And, and he didn't react at all. And I said to him, he's watching it on MTV, I said to him, uh, you're upset by that? No, ah, it's okay, it's fine. And, and it was just after the trial in 2005 where he's found not guilty of all those, all those ridiculous charges against him. And then he said nothing. I thought, okay, Mike's, Mike's happy, fine. I'm going to leave it there, you know. And then about a month later, I saw him and he was in, we were in Bahrain. I said, hey, what have you been up to? He said, oh, fine, it's been good. Um, M&M's people want, want to know if you want to speak out and stuff. Oh, it's okay, they're just a little upset with me. So why are they upset with you, Mike? They, they, they gave you bad publicity. So I, I just bought all this music. So now every time he plays, he has to have promotion for me and I get paid. <laughs> yeah. And I just stared at him. So are, you, are, you, are, you, are you serious? He goes, yeah, I've, I bought all this music. <laughs> Every time he wants to go on stage, he has to ask for my permission. He wants his music on an advert. I've got to sign it off. And it, I own all of his songs, everyone he's wrote. And um, <laughs> yeah. Mark Home has done that to me, by the way, just so you know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then that tied Eminem in his knot, really, where it was the biggest, like, slap, bigger than the Will Smith slap. <laughs> <wasn't it? laughs> Dear me. Um, he bought them back, I think, about four or five years after Michael died. Mm. Michael's estate made a fine profit on that, but yeah. that's just the way Mike handled things. He he just felt artists should respect other artists, competitors, and they, and Michael would study the best, and then study them really hard and make it better. So James Brown, Fred Astaire, people like that. He used to study all their work and then make it better. That's that was the way he used to explain 
how you become successful. Find the best of what they do, copy it, and make it better. That was his philosophy. So uh, what, the M&M &M thing was interesting, yeah. What did you learn then from Michael Jackson, the billionaire, and Mohammed Al-Fayed, the billionaire, and the billionaires you were hanging around with at 18 years old? Yeah, so when you're 18, I mean, I mean, it's hard to understand that. So I did think it was real, Rob. Um, but I, I lived in a very small little town but in a place called Barnstable in North Devon. Any of you guys been there? Yeah, no. it's good for holidays, but you don't want to be living there. We got a mutual friend. That's another story. Yuri Geller to, to come and I didn't know I was meeting Michael, but we became very good buddies. And, and then he, we started being out seen together on TV and going to award shows and stuff like that. Now, and then I bought the Ferrari and then the tabloids were all over it. And I just thought it was a bit, a bit strange why everyone hated me in this town. I mean, the hate was unbelievable. And I was really upset about it. But now I'm 42. I could say that for another few weeks. So 42. And I look back at it. I kind of get it. 18-year-old, and you're hanging around with the most famous man in the world, and Muhammad Al-Fayed, and Britney Spears. You're driving a 140,000-pound Ferrari. And to make it even worse, I had long, my team remember this, long permed hair, down, right, like a woman. And then baby oiled my pecs and my abs, driving my, my Ferrari around with the top off, even in the fucking winter. And then I wonder why the whole town thinks I'm a bit strange. <laughs> so... I get it now, but when you're 18, I just thought, so my mates, what's the problem? The trouble I had, what did you do at the weekend, Matt? Oh, I went to the movies with Michael Jackson and David Blaine and Daryl Hannah. They were like, oh yeah, very funny, you know? So, especially when I used to go on holidays, I used to say I was a plumber. My, my wife, she's a nightmare for this because she will sometimes let it slip and it ruins the holiday. We could be at an all-inclusive resort. And if they just get one glimpse of you and they work it out, the whole holiday becomes this whole conversation. And I can hear, I'm eating my dinner, I can hear them going like, hee hee, like behind and stuff, you know? <laughs> and, I, and I say to me, if you, if you freaking said to me, it was an interesting time. But, but what did I get from that? Well, you, you pick up, Mohammed Al-Fayed once said to me, small minds talk about people and they don't get anywhere in life. And medium minds talk about things and great minds talk about ideas. So for those of you who don't know, Mohamed Al-Fayed was the owner of Harrods, the biggest superstar store in the world, multi-billionaire, Ritz Hotel in Paris. And I just got to spend lots of private dinners with him and became a close friend of him through Michael because he used to shut it down so that Michael could shop in peace. And um, his son, Dodie, died in a car crash with Princess Diana. So he, um, he was very switched on. And even at, on the meal, I was at with him and Michael and a few of my other crazy friends at the time, I should say crazy friends, but different than what, what you'd be hanging out with 18 years old. They'd all be talking about, you know, Rob said about billionaires, look at changing the world. They wouldn't be talking about the next million. They'd be talking about changing the world and having an impact and then the billions that would bring in. And then Mohammed said to me one night, it always stuck in my mind, I must be about 24, 25 then. It was a Saturday night and he said, you'll do well in life, Matt, because while we're all here discussing ideas, and how to make the next billion. Everyone else is out in nightclubs at your age, wasting their money, paycheck to paycheck, blowing it and making us rich and giving us time to generate these life-changing ideas. That's stuck in my mind um, ever since. But there are my friends, and they're very protective. And of course, if you've got a group of friends of that caliber, it is going to have a major impact on you. And it, it didn't really occur to me until I got married from my rehearsal wife that... Um, <laughs> She likes that. I don't know how else to say it, but we get on very well now. But when I, when I tried to organize my stag do, only one person was, was normal. All the rest needed security detail and stuff. So just what, my friend and myself, we went bowling. That was about it. But, uh, but yeah, it wasn't normal. But would I change it? Probably not, no. But it's like being part of this incredible mastermind, you call it now, isn't it? Without, without me even knowing it. And my franchises at the time, they benefited from this... Um, and to be fair to them, they probably started thinking, what is he going to do next? You know, because it was, I learned from Michael, one of the biggest lessons was media manipulation, mainstream media manipulation. That kind of put me where I am. And he taught me how to franchise because he said, why aren't you growing fast enough? I thought, he said, uh, I said, well, I can't get any instructors to travel to the next place. He said, well, if I can become the biggest recording artist in the world from Gary, Indiana, where nine children slept in his two bedroom house, broke. Joseph Jackson, his dad, had holes in his shoes in a steel mill. 
and go to IAM, be world famous, you can find someone to travel from Devon and, and, and go expand it out. Uh, so how, I don't know how you can do that. How can I get someone to travel 45 miles? So it's called franchising. And um, I said, it's never been done before, Michael, in martial arts. He goes, exactly, that's why you got to do it. And he wrote on a napkin how I do it, scripted it all out, and bang. And he kept me accountable. It was quite funny conversations too, because I'd ring him up and try and track him down wherever he is in the world, and his £20,000 hotel suite, or his gold-plated phones in the Netherlands, and I was on my Argus cordless thing. I was imagining him at the other end of the phone, you know, in his stance. And he'd say, how have you done this month? I've done great. I've got, you know, 20 members per school. I've got two franchises. How about you, Mike? Oh, I just signed an $80 million deal to tour career. And I come off the phone thinking, I need to up my game. <laughs> <laughs> this, this guy's, I, I wanted to compete against Mike. I really did. I was like, I'm going to get this bastard because he was so ambitious, so ambitious. And when you go to his original home in Havenhurst, when they, the Jacksons became big, he bought a house for his mum, dad, and the family. And they've kept his bedroom just like it was. And when you go up there, on the mirror, he wrote in makeup, I want to have the biggest selling album of all time, sell over 100 million records, be the biggest star in the world. And it's still there to this day at Havenhurst in Encino in California. And that was his vision. He just stared at that every day, constantly in the mirror, his goal to make it happen. But he was the most ambitious, ruthless businessman I've ever met in my life. Wow. Was um, Michael Jackson smart with money, yes or no? And what did you observe about his behavior with money? He, he had the wrong people around him. And that, that was the trouble. The I wrong think, people around yeah. him. Yeah. My time with him, we went for about 12 managers. One of them had his best interests at heart. And then um, obviously people like doctors can cling to him because he has certain insurance policies and stuff. He has medical checks and to go on stage. And he don't just stand there. I'm sure you, and he could been to his concerts. Yeah. He, he, the guy's like on fire on stage. He loses four or five pounds per night. Then he has to go on a drip afterwards to put it all back in himself again because all the effort he put in. But the doctors, if they could kind of st stay in his life, they had a way of doing that and getting his ear. But no, his money choices, the best one he ever made was Paul McCartney. And it was ruthless, but that comes from his father's side, Joseph. Joseph was the ruthless businessman. You've all heard the stories about him, but I've got to say, I've met him loads of times. He's a scary presence. And I was like six foot four, 22 stone of muscle whenever I used to meet the guy. And he used to walk up a frail 85-year-old man. He's like, where's my son? And I was like, geez, flipping heck. And then Michael didn't want to see him. And I had to deliver the news to his dad that your son doesn't want to see you, Mr. Jackson. It was pretty, pretty scary stuff. But the, the, the issue he had was that he knew the investing side of it was the key. So Paul McCartney, when they recorded a video called Say, 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 which is at Neverland, it was called Sycamore Valley then. So if you ever watched that music video... That's what Neverland became. That's how we found it, middle of nowhere. Paul said, my advice to you, Michael, you're making all this money from Thriller. Invest the money into music catalogs. Then you'll have like a recurring passive income for the rest of your life. And Paul had some examples of that. Now, Michael, knowing that, that the Beatles didn't own their own music, a big mistake they made, he turned around to Paul and he said, I'm going to buy all your songs. And he's like, oh, yeah, all right, Mike, yeah, that would be that ain't going to happen. And Michael Wade stayed at his house in London. They were close friends. And before he knows it, the Beatles catalog ATV went, went for sale. And Michael outbid everyone and bought it, I think, for around $38 million back then. And Paul McCartney was pretty pissed off. Because <laughs> every time Paul went on stage, you need to sing. And then every time they, the music was being used for adverts, he would sign it off. And that was kind of a ruthless side of Mike. And he never really forgive him. He would always try and get access to us at hotel suites with here. Paul McCartney's in the lobby and he's trying to get him and Michael didn't want to see him. And Michael used to say to me, he offered him a chance to, to buy it back, but Paul couldn't, Paul couldn't um, afford to buy it. He needed to work harder. That's what he said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you a funny story, which I hadn't told anyone before, but it's a good one. I picked Michael, I know it sounds weird to you, but this is my normality, right? Michael calls me, I mean, he's in New York, and he expects you kind of to jump. And so I'm getting a Concord into, into Heathrow. I need you to pick me up. People are amazed when they see Michael Jackson walk for arrivals. You've got no idea, especially after 9-11, because you used to come off the tarmac, but you, can't, you couldn't do that anymore. And we get in the car. He sits behind me, and I'm driving my Mercedes at the time. And he says, uh, Matt, I hear Madonna is in London. So, oh, yeah, Mike, she's doing a, a West End show. I don't know what camera the show was called now. Some West End show. She was here as a resident. 
and uh, singing. She's doing, and he goes, good. She needs all the help she can get. That's what he said. Yeah, I mean, that guy was competitive like you wouldn't believe. Actually, one of his pet snakes he called Madonna. Yeah, a big borough constrictor. I said, what's his name? He said, Madonna. That's true. That's a true story. <laughs> Matt, is it true you were personal trainer to Meghan Markle? Um, I don't know. What does she say? <laughs> what, is, what does she say? I'm asking the questions. <laughs> well, the thing with Meghan Markle is that she, uh, sometimes when you get involved with certain celebrities and you, you sign these very thick contracts and... Um, yeah, what's your next question, anyway? <laughs> These people can go on Google and come up with that type of stuff. She's a lovely girl. We, we are connected. Have you ever had a relationship with Britney Spears? Jesus Christ, I'm <laughs> well, can we, you know, you can never defame or talk about some, when her dad, you're safe at the moment, as far as I'm aware, Britney's alive and well. She's doing good. And um, she used to do duets for Michael Jackson in 2000 and, one, the last show we did, he did a duet of a way to make you feel. We used to hang out with each other. We were good friends, yeah. <laughs> Just look at his face for a minute and then... Don't talk to me, ex-wife. <laughs> did you have an affair with Katie Price? Look at that. <laughs> How did you go from Britney Spears to Katie Price? <laughs> no. Um, the media made all that up. So it was in the media? Yeah. But yeah, it wasn't time. Sure. It was a very awkward situation. My wife was getting hugs at school, like, oh, I'm so sorry and stuff. And No, I, I was training her, and then they just decided to, to uh, fall right into my trap. So. Ah, so you would quite happily manipulate the media, would you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I had a good friend who taught me that, Michael. <laughs> and on our back of that, it sends traffic to our Facebook pages, and we get loads of bookies and quarries from martial arts schools, and then the franchises have got something that the other martial arts schools don't have, and then people gravitate towards us because they want to be part of this, this higher level, the mainstream media. Mm. Mm. Is it true you fathered one of Michael Jackson's children? <laughs> they get what? Do not judge until you listen to the answer, because I know the answer. <laughs> Is it true you fathered one of Michael Jackson's children? I, I, I honestly don't know, but I do. I know for sure I didn't piss the bed at 30 years old. <laughs> I can give as good as I can take. Well, I'm I used think to it be... was 15 when I stopped, but 30, you know. Um, Okay, then. So what's the story behind apparently you fathering one of Michael Jackson's children? What's this got to do with mindset and money? <laughs> but since you're asking it, and I suppose publicity is in the way, um, he was my friend. So just like any other friends, if, you, if a friend's got a problem with conceiving, for whatever reason it may be, then there were several of his friends, many of them were spoke out, who donated... Sperm, and I can't believe we're talking about it on the business show, but seems you asked the question, that's fine. And I happen to be one of them, but whether or not he's my son or not, I do not know. And it all came out after he died in the court papers. They revealed sealed documents and stuff, and I was one of about 18 people. Wow. I just want to get it straight. I did not have a wank for Michael Jackson. <laughs> okay? I had it done the medical way, and you had to visit the clinic three times, and it was very unpleasant. So don't think I'm tossing one off my mate Mike. But, but this, this wouldn't be a big issue if it weren't for the fact that it was him, would it? How many men do this every day for, um, to help their mates out and stuff? You don't conceive. He was my mate. That was my reality. That, when, when my friend calls me up, he, he didn't call me up initially. My other mate, Mark Lester, who played remember Oliver Twist, the original Oliver Twist. Well, Mark and Michael were best friends. They grew up together. They were in the same magazine as Jackson 5. Mark calls me up one day and he says, could you um, donate for Michael? He wants to try and have another kid. There's, there was a few of us. I think I could talk about it. It's been in the press. McCauley Culkin and people like that, all around my age group. And, um, yeah, I did see a big deal on it. At that time, I was only about 20, 23. It was in 2001, I believe. And it was, Mark told me he did it years and years ago. And that was it. Just went to some clinic, and it was never really talked about ever again. 
But my, my ex-wife didn't weren't very happy about it when the media were outside our house and the helicopters were going over the top and she just wanted to marry a guy who wanted to watch Coronation Street. She like, <laughs> oh, bless her. I tell you, she sat there, those choppers going over. I was thinking, oh, shit. What's Michael done now? <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the fun part done. And I very much enjoyed it. Thanks for being a good sport, Matt. And Thanks, doing that. Yes. Give him a round of applause. So they will all be TikTok shorts coming out on our TikTok yeah. channels. <laughs> right. I did say we'd do two parts and we wanted to have some fun as well as some seriousness. There's a bit of both there. But now I want to focus on Matt Fidesti, entrepreneur, and his life and his career and how we turn it into mindset and money and success. So you've built the largest martial arts franchise in the world, um, well over a thousand franchises. You know, we were talking about this just in the foyer. You could value it at $200 million, realistically, with what smaller franchises have sold for. How did you build the world's largest martial arts franchise? It was all I ever wanted to do. I was bullied seriously bad at school. I mean, I was hated by the girls. I was called the nerd. You know, I was a skinny little tiny thing. And uh, yeah, I couldn't write. That was the, another issue too. I don't due to, they assumed I was, I was right-handed. When I got to 13, they realized I was left-handed and um, they gave me all these gadgets to try and fix it, but they didn't really fix it. So I can, I can kind of write notes to myself. It's like, I don't know, it, hieroglyphics, you never understand what, what it is, you know? So that was a bit of a mind block, but I never had to write. It's never helped me back, Rob, because I just signed autographs and signatures. That's it. That's what it comes to. When, when it goes to hotels and stuff, I hand the forms to my wife. We have like a routine. She fills them out. <coughs> and then I just do me squiggle at the end and no one really notices it. That's it. But the, I left school, no qualifications. My mum and that, my mum comes from a very academic. There's 14 children and they've all got university graduates. And my dad comes from a get-a-trade background. And when I told them I want to be a martial arts instructor, they were horrified because there was no blueprint for this. And I started off my first school. I worked as a lifeguard for £2.75 an hour at North Devon Leisure Centre. And I used that time to really think about how can I do this? How can I make it happen? Because martial arts is very old school back then. There's no music in the lessons. We counted in the, the native language of that martial art, Korean in my case for Taekwondo. And it was back back in the, it was all about 10 press-ups and kick them in the belly and so on. And I wanted to make it different. And I, I wanted to make sure whatever I could do, my students could do. So if I asked them to do the splits and I wanted to be able to do that. That's not actually right as a coach to be, have that mindset though, but you learn over the years. Then I had a friend come back from America and he said, you wouldn't believe what's going on over there. We didn't have the internet back then. They're 20 years ahead of us. There's multi-millionaires. But I like my eyes think, I want to compromise stand for money. So now they've got a standard two map. So I charged a three pound a class, had about 50, 60 members there. And then I worked two pounds, 75 an hour as a lifeguard, saved enough money to get a ticket to San Francisco to this martial arts business conference. And I arrived there, there's about 1,500 people. And after room were multi-millionaires. And the owner of the, who put together the, con, the conference and developed the concept of martial arts business a guy called Nick Kikinis, he was in his 80s and he was so impressed by this 17-year-old, he took me on his wing and he said, I'm going to make you rich and if I'm going to make you, make you rich, then I'll make you famous in your industry as well. He admired my ability when I told him I used my last money to get to, uh, to get for San Francisco. And he said, follow me around for the next couple of weeks. He introduced me to a few big school owners. They come to me for advice now, which is ironic. And then, yeah, literally, I went back and I implemented all these things. So I was the first person to put people on direct debit in the martial arts in England. Well, I was called standing orders back then. So you're not collecting cash at the end. It looks really terrible. And I changed things, put music on the lessons. We put education into the systems. And 80 grand a month for my overheads was £2,000 a month, 18 years old. Wow. And I was the first. Now, I got a lot. They say the lead dog gets the fawns. And I did. My industry turned on me. My organization I belong to kicked me out, saying, you can't do that. They all flipping copied me two years later <laughs> and jumped on the bandwagon and tried to work it out. And then I just went from one extreme to another. And I started franchising out and expanded. And then, then we went international. We did Germany first. Then I sold that. Then we went to Australia, which is still going strong. And it, it's turning your passion into profession. I, when you backs up against the wall, Rob, there was nothing else for me to turn to. It was just that. And I didn't want to, the bullies and everything can... 
prove them, prove that they were right, prove that my parents were right. I had this fire in my belly. I'm, I'm going to freaking show you all. I can make this happen. I'm going to prove you wrong, Mum. I'm going to prove you wrong, Dad. My mum kind of believed in it a little bit, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make this happen. And uh, my other brother is a very academic. One finished university at 29. I was already done and retired by then, and finished. And he he came out and he just ended up getting just a, a normal job. But for me, it was what happened in my childhood that gave me the hunger to go and thrive, to make things happen. If it weren't, for, and I wouldn't change it. It was painful, painful times, but I wouldn't change it for anything. Actually, the bullies. Well, you might remember this. I. We re reunited with Philip and Schofield, Philip Schofield, Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby. And we reunited on this morning. They tracked him down. Your bully. My bully, yeah. And you went on national TV. National TV, yeah. Facing yeah. your bully. Philip Schofield was running a Be Kind campaign. And they, he, want, he reached out. And I thought, that's not me. I mean, me being me, I thought, let's do it on national TV. Let's, let's try and inspire people. So my publicist reached out and they're like, we want that story. He like backed out four or five times that day, and then he got a bit drunk in the in the um, in the green room, and they're coming back thinking, "Oh, he started drinking. I don't know if he's going to turn up." And they got me on first to tell the story. You better watch it on YouTube. And um, I had like white trousers on like this, and Philip Schofield was worried. He said to me before we went live, "You promised me, Matt, you're not going to kick him in the head because <laughs> I know what you're like with publicity. You're going to punch and knock him out. So you're a worldwide press. I won't do it, Philip." And as he came out, I stood up and I shook his hand and said, "Thanks for making." changing all these children's lives all over the world. If it weren't for you giving me a hard time in school, I wouldn't be where I am now. And we went back a year later, and he started training with me, changed his life, and then he ended up being our anti-bully ambassador. And, uh, yeah, we're still good friends to this day. But we did on national TV. Um, but, yeah, the bullying, the childhood, led to everything else. And it was the bullying, bullied boy becomes millionaire, which the tabloids hit at 18 years old. It went all across the UK. And then they got on the TV shows like Trisha, some of you remember them, Kilroy, um, all those type of type of shows, and on the back of that, that's how Michael Jackson wanted to meet me, and I got into that inner circle. Yeah. There's one more, one more point to it. One more point to it, which I missed out, which is probably the critical bit. I felt where we can edit that back in later. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I felt school was a waste of time. I really did. There was nothing I could put my thing on that I got taught at school that's helped me at all. If anything, it freaking hurt me. And maths was baffling to me because one of our GCSE questions, how many 50Ps can you put into a telephone box? And in my GCSE exam, I wrote next to a stupid question. So I knew what I wanted to do. But in that maths class, when I was about 13, do you know we had these exercise books back there? I don't know if they still use it. It's probably iPads now. But on the back page, I wrote a list of goals. This own the biggest martial arts train, have a Ferrari by the age of 20, and some other funny things to like do the splits like Jean-Claude Van Damme on the chairs and all this type of stuff that only people in my sport would understand. And get a sick pack, have big muscles. And I, I had to put it away. And my mum, she, she brought it out um, when I was about 21. She, she found it. So look at this. And I, that's what I focused on, just visualized on that. And I'm a great believer in the law of attraction. I think wherever you put your energy is where, where you're going to flow, you know. And that was, it was not about making money with me, though, Robert. It's about offering a good service, and then the byproduct was the money. I never focused on the money. I think if you focus on the money, I see everyone go wrong. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. You've got to offer tremendous value that nothing else is, nobody else is offering out there, changing lives. I don't teach, we don't sell martial arts, we sell life skills that will change children forever. Stop them being bullied, teach them goal setting. They'll teach them how to be, have good nutritional habits, stay away from drugs and alcohol. The martial arts bit is the bottom of the list. They still get taught that, but that's what we're selling, life-changing benefits. And as long as you offer a good product or service, the byproduct's gonna be the financial bit. And that's what I got into my franchises at an early age and they, they went off to do extremely well. Wow. So in the spirit of being here, serving you rather than being selfish, because I love hanging out with Matt and I've got some of my own selfish questions in here. And Matt's given me some I could ask. We're going to do a bit of a Q&A in a moment. So I'm going to give you a chance to ask Matt a question. No rules. You can ask whatever you like. Um, <laughs> no, they're my rules. <laughs> um, so... Haters, antidepressants, no sleeping, mum dying young, family ostracization due to your success. 
These are all things that have happened to you. Mm -hmm. Do you mind talking about what happened and why it all happened and um, how you managed to navigate all that? Yeah, I think um, I learned this just by Clubhouse, actually. When, when people, when you look at us, who've done well for us, entrepreneurs, you all see the glitz, glamour, the Ferraris, the Lamborghinis, and the helicopters and stuff, but you don't really see the, the, the stuff that goes behind the scenes because entrepreneurs have this tenacious spirit that they'll overcome. They don't turn back. So they'll get something negative happen in their life. Most people think, I've had enough of that, and they'll turn back. So for me, yeah, haters was initially, early 20s, I found it difficult on, on blogs and the gossip, all these untrue rumors about you and things. And, you know, and all the affair stuff and all that, it's all nonsense. And most of the stuff that was in the newspapers about me and models, I contrived that with them. I sat down and did a plan, just like I watched Michael do it, you know, and, and it raises your profile. And that can have a negative effect because the higher your profile is, the more successful you get. I admire people who become wealthy and don't have fame. It's very rare and very hard to do because they have probably got the perfect life. Because I've got to watch what I put out on Instagram because if I get something wrong, it could end up in the papers and then have a, a reflection. Because so I'm like a head teacher, school teacher hat with my organization. So, yeah, someone once told to me, said to me, I was about 28, I think. It was my German partner at the time. And I was driving him. He said, uh, one day, Matt, something's going to go wrong. Because everything I touched went to gold, literally. My property portfolio, we've got the biggest private property portfolio in, in the, the Southwest. Everything was just unbelievably went right for me. I just, most famous people don't get anybody on the phone. I used to take phone calls from President Clinton when he was in power to pass on to Michael. That's how strange my life was. And he is a guy called Lance. And he said, something will go wrong. I didn't believe him. And in one year, flipping everything went wrong. I, I had, my marriage wasn't going to sustain that type of, um, that type of obsessive work that I was doing with the schools. And then I'd get back and at nine o'clock, my own training is very important to me. Then I'd go out nine o'clock at night, train for an hour, have come back at 10.30. And I'll be back on it again, working, uh, not sleeping much and try, trying to get that balance right, which is absolutely impossible. And I had three young children. So she was amazing. My first wife with, uh, well, what she didn't put up with there. But the downside to it, whenever it went wrong, she wanted a divorce, obviously. It was not what she signed up for. She didn't want, she just wanted a stable. And we get on really well now, by the way. She, she, we see each other all the time. She comes around and my, my other three children, Rob always teased me, I've got six kids. And well, technically I've got eight, I guess. And if you want to look at it that way, <laughs> not, not because of him, because I, she had two children before, um, before I met her, stepsons. And something had to give. So, yeah, she wanted a divorce. I thought being big shot, it's all right. I've got loads of money. No problem here. I've got this big mansion. She was a cleaner when I met her. She was two grand in debt. Yeah, right. You try telling that to the flipping judge. Initially, <laughs> it was like, do you, want, do you want to take the shirt off me back, sir? You know, I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was seeing the cars being driven off by bailiffs because they'd be in order to her. All my properties were frozen. It was hell. The barristers were fighting at each other. And I was like, even the judge, obviously they're trying to accuse me of having an affairs, but the trouble is most of this stuff was set up. I mean, Danielle Lloyd used to go out publicity stunts and things, and she was at the height of her fame. We'd get paid by the media to have dinner together because my link to Michael and then she, her fame coming out of Big Brother, all that controversy at that time. Do you remember how huge it was? And um, that all backfired on me in divorce. And, the, and they read out all these names I was supposed to have affairs with. And the, the, the judge said, I think this should be in the high court, not in Barnstable. You know? <laughs> and my barrister looked, looking at me, and he's like, he's like, afterwards, he's like, wow, this is unbelievable. But I said, I don't think so, because he's all about kicking him out of my house within two hours. And yeah, and I realized then that um, the, the getting the relationship thing right is really important. I do say to all my my franchises all the time really work on you relationship. don't make the mistake i did well, it turned out okay for me in the end but yeah that year also michael died on, on us too now when you've got a normal friend who dies you can you can um go to bereavement counseling which i did and they give you antidepressants for a while which happened now the trouble is when i went to my bereavement counselor they sit me down i drive up with a brand new ferrari what was it i had then three three five, five. three sixty i think it was that bad oh, yeah yeah 360 spider. I bought it for. Why did you ask me what it was and then tell me what it was? 
Because you remind That's what my wife does to me. So I... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I drive up. So I park outside with 140,000 brand new. It was the latest Ferrari. And get out of that. And I'm thinking, this is, this is ridiculous, you know? And then the ladies that seen that sees it part time. I, I bet you there's not many people who turn up at these depression counseling, drive, turn up in a brand new Ferrari, come from a mansion. And then she starts talking to me about everything. So my mum got given six months to live, breast cancer. Second time she had it, secondary cancer. Uh, the divorce, Michael dies. Yeah, the family thing. One of my family members tried to set up a competition with me. And that was never going to happen. But he, he opened like 20 schools. He took my head of curriculum, who's my best friend at the time. And my father went away. We never spoke again since. And um, it's, everything just went wrong at once. And in the end, she was trying to counsel me. But it's impossible. Because everywhere I went, Michael's music was playing more than ever. People want to talk to me about it. The, the papers are throwing, hanging stories on me and his friends every flipping day. And in the end, she, had, she was starting to cry. And I was giving her a cuddle. <laughs> so there's something wrong here. You're supposed to be helping me. You know? So I, I called my doctor. I said, this is ridiculous. She's more depressed than me. She can't handle it. But no, you're right, Rob. They try and prescribe you everything. And then you had like five-minute appointments. I'm sure it's even worse now. And I was on like four or five antidepressants. And, and they gave me Valium. And all. I was like a walking, flipping zombie. And I was trying to train and keep up with things. I could only see my kids every couple of weeks. Yeah, I had enough. I just wanted to end it. And I had all, all these millions. I think I was worth about 30 million then, 28 million, I think, then. And it was like real cash because we had to make it liquid for the divorce. And... Uh, so how the frick can you be depressed when you've got that much money available to you? You've got contacts, unbelievable. But my contacts couldn't save my mum. When we lowered that the coffin into the grave, it was like, that's what really manned me up to change my ways. Because there was a bit of ego about me to, until that point, definitely. When you drive around with perms and all the rest of it, that's your reality. Michael had gone by that point. Uh, all my, so I thought, I'll get the best professor in the world. I flew to Dublin. Paid £50,000 for a trial drug. That still didn't save her. And I lost her at 56 years old. She was like my rock. And it was shocking. It was shocking, I tell you. Because I, I didn't imagine all these things could uh, go wrong. But the positive side to that is that a series of events happened where you kind of wake up and find yourself. And I, I was living, like you call yourself, what the words you use? Not the real you. I was living uh, what people expected me to become. And you're around, my inner circle required a tremendous amount of secrecy. So I was saying to, to Rob last night, my first wife, Marcy, when she used to ring me, I couldn't tell her where I was in the world because that's the way Michael would have won it. Because if it would leak, the paparazzi would be there and his privacy would be ruined. That's quite a hard conversation to have with your wife. Where are you? Can't tell you. Well, why, why won't Michael let you tell me? Don't you trust me? I don't know. You know I won't mention her name, but I don't know. Uh, he just doesn't want the paparazzi finding out. But why don't you just go and marry Michael then? And so, so uh, well, that, ne that necklace is nice. Do I ask you for it? So I'll ask Michael permission for the buy it. You know, that, that was the trouble. It was this whole kind of, I wasn't being myself. I was detached to this incredible amount of secrecy and, and power and privilege. And when that went down, it's interesting because I went to Euro Disney recently with my kids. That's a whole different experience when you go to Euro Disney on your own, like me than when you do with Michael Jackson, I can assure you. <laughs> <laughs> I said to Monique, when we're queuing up for this fucking ride, I never have to do this. <laughs> just, what did, how did it work? Well, basically, see the hotel there, the tunnels under here. He just used to fucking come put the tunnel right at the front, come up, wave at the fans, come up, and then the next, come up the next, all of the Euro Disney, they got these tunnels. You'll never find litter at Euro Disney. They just appear from nowhere, and they take it away. And, uh, yeah, we used to use those tunnels from the Disney Hotel. And then when he died, my life hit some serious reality from Neverland, <laughs> from Neverland to Bastable. <laughs> and he always used to say to me, when I die, you'll always be uh, referred to as Michael Jackson's bodyguard for the rest of your life. And whenever news articles were written about me, it, it used to piss me off. So I got, like Rob said, I got success in my own right here. And when I did Rich House Poor House, and so you saw, saw me on that, did two episodes of that, I made them sign a contract not to mention Michael because I had enough of trying to be in his shadow. But he was right. I can't, now I've learned to accept it. I'm friends with Alvarez Presley's bodyguard, Bill Wallace, who's the champion of the martial arts around the world. Bill Superfoot Wallace, they call him. And he, on his watch, he lost Alvarez Presley and John Bellucci, one of the Blues Brothers. And when we got together, he said, I oh, didn't do a very good job with Michael. So you could fucking talk. <laughs> you, you lost Alvarez Presley and John Bellucci. 
I just thought Michael, I was in England at the time. I wasn't with him. And we had a bit of a laugh about it. And he said the same thing he's all referred to as Alvis's bodyguard. But you, you learn to live with it. And yeah, with all of you, I think sometimes, we know, I never used to talk about it, but I noticed the last talk I gave, people can relate with you. They think, I'm on antidepressants. I can still go out and do things. That's normal. But this guy is actually flipping normal. You know, he isn't moonwalking around his house on his own at night and, uh, and, and, and mixing with things. I'm a normal guy. I said to Rob, we, we got building work going on at our house the last two years. Uh, they call me the tracksuit millionaire. I'm in MF branded gear. I have this thing, ABP, always be promoting. And uh, I'm obsessed by it. I'm always in my own branded gear. And I, and I go outside and the builder says to me, so it's not quite right here, Matt. So why is that? Well, we're the builders. You're a fucking multimillionaire. And I'm dressed better than you. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that's just it. I, become, I learned to become not to worry about what people think about you and just be the real me. And uh, meeting my wife, obviously, was a very humbling experience because she was, uh, she won't mind me saying it, but she's, she was very religious. She was 19 when I met her. She was a pop star in South Africa. And due to her religious beliefs and her culture, they have to stay a virgin. They can't have a boyfriend until they're married. Now, before that, a month before that, I was dating a very famous girl from Big Brother, which I think a few of my franchises were horrified about. And uh, it was a completely different experience <laughs> from that, from the first date. And I moved in with this girl. And Larry, my manager, didn't see me for six weeks. And then a month later, I meet, who's, who's now my wife. And then, uh, yeah, and you have to wait until the wedding night before you can get jiggy. Uh, I think I just franchises anyone who actually he sat down and he said, You've got to stop dating all these famous women. Just do something for me. Just stay quiet and, and just find yourself and stop dating all these models and stuff. And then someone will appear. And he was totally right. I think he was going to introduce me to a hot dinner lady or something. He promised me it was all a lie. <laughs> it was all a lie just to, just to stop me mixing with these false boobies. If anyone's in the crowd with him, I'm not against them. I'm just saying, you know, the type of look, you know, you can imagine. And so on, what the world's become now. And then, yeah, she ended up grounding me. She flushed all my tablets down the loo. And I was like shaking for like two or three weeks. She shouldn't do that, by the way. And apparently in the, the, the fish were all so happy in South Africa at the time, jumping around <laughs> after eating all these antidepressants and stoned out on Valium. There were sharks appearing in Cape Town. But yeah, we, became, we came, I met her a, a year. Ten Can years you remember ago. what the question was, by the way? The question? Yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't. But when they're engaged like this, Rob, then you just keep talking. All right, okay, you know the deal. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, and it weren't for her. I, I, I do believe everything happens for a reason. And if, you search, if you're searching too hard, sometimes you've got to step back and, and you'll see things that other people don't. One of the biggest problems my instructors, my franchises have is finding staff, the right staff. But when I go around to the schools, I can say, that person's perfect, that person's perfect. Because there's a saying, there's diamonds in the backyard. Sometimes you can be too close to a situation and that things won't work out, you know. And, and it's, uh, you've got to step back and just find yourself first. I mean, what, what, what Brian teaches is, is phenomenal, you know, finding who you really are, visualizing where you want to be, getting your alpha out. Because having the other one first isn't going to, is over. And people can learn a lot from my mistakes. That's why I don't mind talking about it. You know, I don't, don't mind. I've had affairs. I messed up there. I, was, I said on Rich House Point, I messed up my first marriage because of it. I apologized to my wife. She forgive me. And um, we're best friends now. On Mother's Day, she comes around. Got Monique there as well. It's a little awkward and tense sometimes. Got to see his kids there. We don't have... <laughs> He's got his wife there, his ex-wife there, and about 28 kids. <laughs> But it's all good. <laughs> oh, and he's probably fathered one of Michael Jackson's children. <laughs> Other than that, my life's been pretty normal. <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll take two or three questions. So let's see the hand nice and high who'd like to ask a question. Okay. We'll come over here to the lady. I think it looks like a pink top. It might be the light. Um, we we'll just come with pink. Thank you. Just down come on Pete here I like Pete I think Pete that's funny I think Pete nah. firstly thank you for sharing because I never got to go to see Michael Jackson and he kept me alive when I was a teenager so thank you what's your most memorable moment with him you know with Michael there's never a dull moment right but uh he used to come around our house 
for New Year's and Christmas to stay with Stan and just mix with the family and, and just hang out with us. And that was cool because he kind of experienced the normalness. I, I used to like, and I, I took a lot away from this, and my team would, would appreciate this too. He would go to tremendous effort to do things behind the scenes. So we'd turn up at children's hospitals wherever we were around the world, unannounced, and he would he would normally give out toys or and you pay for kids' operations. I tell you the one thing I witnessed an awful lot with Mike, he would pay for kids' funerals but the parents couldn't afford it, and they never know to this day that Michael paid for it. So so we we found ways to wire money to their accounts through, through various methods. And also like the homeless people, I don't know if it exists anymore. We used to have Carble City in London. And we just turned up one night at three in the morning. I, it was quite risky to do, but these guys are all pissed. You're like, oh, you look like Michael Jackson, but actually it was him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They used to say, he used to say, Matt, we'll go there. And I said, You really want to go there? So yeah, we'll go there. Okay. Well, I mean, actually, security, you know, personal officer, I don't think it's safe. It's fine. They, they love me. They're drunk. Everyone loves me when I'm, and we got out there. And he said, But we can't give them money because I'll spend it. Or spend it on drugs or something. So we used to go to Domino's Pizza and buy shit loads of pizza. The thing with Michael, he's a bit of a comedian. He would like to come in and and come in and order it with us. And people would stare and think it can't be, it can't be him, it can't be him. And he'd be like, "Hi," like that. And he'd be signing covers and stuff. And he'd come out with all these pizzas, and we used to go and dish out pizza to the homeless people and stuff like that. So I used to enjoy doing that time type of stuff with him. I never land, you'd never see him. I was boring there. I don't know what a fascination with that, but you music in your ears all the time and you never see him. But he's, um, yeah, great memories. And I, I think when he was on stage, that was not the man I knew. There was no relation to that animal on stage. And I, I used to say, I, I would be underneath the stage with him. Do you know that thing he used to pop up stage with and he'd stay still like that for about 10 minutes? He'd be on the stage, he'd be, he'd be like this. There's freaking 80,000 people screaming in his name. I used to say, you're nervous? Nah, I've been doing this since I was five. But okay. And he's dressed like a twit in this big gold thing, makeup on his face. He goes, oh, Matt, watch this. Why don't you get up there? You watch the power of silence. I'm just going to stand still. And they'll scream at me for doing nothing. For and we, and, and they, have a, they used to have a wager on his team on how long he would stay still for. Or if it's going to be seven minutes, ten minutes, they'd have a bet. And he would just stand there still. But they never told me. So Yuri Geller's assistant at the time stitched me up. And it was live TV in Munich, Michael Jackson and Friends in 99. So Michael pops up through the stage, bang, up there, stands still, not moving, and it's been broadcast around the world. It's the first time I was bodyguarding him on, as a stage. And then one of the guys I prayed, they were pranksters around. Michael's the biggest prankster in the world. And he said, Matt, I think there's something wrong with Mr. Jackson. You better go out and see him. And I was that close to walking out in front of billions of people watching this live show, screwing up his performance. They're just lucky, just before he did that, he went like that with his head, and they all went wild. He, he broke out into uh, Where You Make Me Feel and Billy Jean. And he came off stage. And I was like, Do you know when he does Billy Jean where he puts the hat on and he goes, he gets the spotlight? He come, he come to the curtain I gave him, and I gave him a drink. He's down and on, she's quick. He put the uh, glove on. And he goes, Matt, watch this. He winked at me. And he goes, boom. And the spotlight came on. And, then, and I said, afterwards, where did that come from? He goes, I don't know. It just comes from above. And an hour later, we're flipping in pajamas watching Bart Simpson. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I can't fucking sleep. I'm buzzing. How'd you do that? So I don't know. I don't know. So do you train for that? I don't know. I don't know how I do it. Nothing. No rehearsal. In the afternoon, everyone's rehearsing. All these big stars, like Beyonce and and all it was Michael Jackson and friends. He didn't want to rehearse. Ten minutes before we drew on stage, we were watching the show from it. And the great, I tell you, the greatest memory I have with him is when we. Do you know the Alvis has left the building thing? So we'd use a lookalike at the end, and you everyone thought it was Michael. By that point, we were watching the show from the hotel suite. So they were all screaming, Michael, Michael. And they were he was watching it from his hotel suite. So it wasn't actually him. Yeah, especially the one where he, he took off in the um do you remember he takes off in the uh rocket? Yeah, that one Michael. We'd already been gone by 15 minutes for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was like he was like eating candy on the whiskey by that point. <laughs> well, we were watching it on the screen, yeah. Amazing, amazing how they did all those. Um, whenever he put the, the, the wolf thing on, I shouldn't tell you this stuff really, but he won't mind better than the estate won't mind. But yeah, that was uh, lots of great memories, lots of great times. But the impact in my, on my life was unbelievable. Definitely. We'll go to this gentleman 
here with the VIP lanyard on the blue shirt. Oh, thank you. I loved your conversation. I felt a fly on the wall. Discipline. Did you have the discipline within you or do you think the martial arts provided that discipline? Definitely the martial arts. If you, if you took that away from me, then uh, everything would have not worked out. Because you need... This didn't start off by a Facebook ad. I mean, this was me getting up at five in the morning, giving out leaflets, getting chased by dogs, old grannies hitting me with handbags, getting soaking wet. From five in the morning to 11 at night, going around council estates, delivering leaflets. That's how I started this thing off. We, I had no money. I opened up my bank account for £100. There was a requirement back then to open up a business account for £100. And I saved that from the £2.75 an hour. No, the discipline of never give up. Martial arts teaches you that. Aim towards black belt excellence. And not just the martial arts, the weight training as well. Because I'm a great believer, if you build your body, you build your mind. If I stop weight training, then it affects my business. I just, I, I, I have this saying, if, you grow, if you're not growing, you're dying. And so I think your muscle cells, your body's always got to be growing and transforming. So you've got some kind of goal there. And, and keep growing in your mind, reading books. and Now, now it's audio books and so on. And that keeps you, go, keeps you pushing for Discipline is a massive um, thing that you have to have to, to make it happen. And, to, and understand you will have to take knockbacks. You're going to get a Will Smith in your face. And you just gotta, you just got you just to keep going. What, keep do you going. Think, what do you think of the Will Smith slap? I, I, I kind of get the showbiz world and, and how things are. And I think it was a bit unfair. And when you, I've been to the Oscars before. And there is a tremendous amount of massive security there. So why they didn't intercept, because he's Will Smith, maybe. Maybe they thought he was going to take the mic and say something like, uh, hey, that was wrong. Could you kind of apologize? And I think there's, there's a lot going on behind the scenes that's got him. It wasn't so much the slap part, is what he said afterwards. And for me, it's disappointing to him because I have to be a role model for thousands of kids. I've got to be careful what I say when I'm in front of them. He's got billions of people watching him, probably four or five billion with social media. That thing's everywhere even now. He would have known that, and he's a flipping idol to them all. So now, in a way, they think it's okay to go and slap someone. Um, but, you know, if any of you did that at the Oscars, you would have been downed on the floor, arrested, and pulled out within minutes. Either as you approach Chris Rock, or as you come back to your seat, you certainly wouldn't have been able to get the abuse. I had one friend who was there that night, and they didn't want to intercept Will Smith, they told me. He's a security guard there. Because his state of mind was so out of control, they were concerned of how that was going to look on live TV. It would have been a squabble. They really believed it was that, that emotion was there. They were too scared for the security to, uh, to go in. And there's lots of other topics that have been, been around too, like the woke thing and the, the uh, Black Lives Matter. And everyone didn't know what to do, I think. I think they just... But yeah, I mean, it's... Clearly, Will's got a lot of things going on in his personal life. It's deeper than the slap. That was just, to do that, he would have been so well-trained. For PR, you get quizzed on every damn question, everything. He would have been rehearsed. He's handled some of the most awkward questions in his life. To explode, it, would, it, was not, it wasn't that what's triggered it. It's something in his personal life that would have triggered That's what I firmly believe. But I do think they dealt with it very wrong, and he should have been secured, and he should have been thrown out like we would have been done if we had gone up and slapped someone. So, yeah. Thanks, Matt. First off, isn't Matt amazing? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Couple of quick things. Number one is lockdown taught me that it's our responsibility to enjoy our life. And I would say before lockdown, I was mostly a, a guy that would enjoy his life and have fun. And then lockdown happened, and that was a harder thing to do. So one of the reasons we wanted to bring you, Matt, and what we did here was to have that nice balance between seriousness and fun. And life's too fucking short not to enjoy it. And who says that business can't be fun? And that's been a big lesson to me since lockdown. The next thing I want to say is, what you don't know about this man, you know about all this cool, fun and crazy stuff. Matt's one of the kindest human beings I know. For me and how close my friendships are are never to do with how long I've known someone. They're to do with how the person is that's in front of me. So Matt could easily get 
around the stage. But he done this. this as he's done this for free. <laughs> and, well, now you say that, Rob. Maybe we should talk. <laughs> so he's never asked me for any money. Never. And he introduced me to Simon Cowell. He introduced me to Nigel Farage. He introduced me to Yuri Geller and never asked for anything. And he is never too busy to help. He's a very kind human being. And stuff like that's not talked about enough. Um, but I think I have a responsibility as an entrepreneur to give back and do those things. And I was thinking about what you learned from Michael. And it made me want to do more of that. And me being inspired by Matt to want to give more and help more people. And sometimes you think, well, I've got to get my business sorted first or my finances sorted. Or, you know, when I'm at 20 grand a month, then I can go and buy the whole Domino's pizza and go and give it out. No, no, no. You can do that stuff now. You can do it now. You just maybe can't buy the whole pizza shop. Just one pizza. But... Sometimes when you're trying to change the world, you forget that you change the world by changing one person's life at a time. So I don't talk about this stuff because it's, I probably should talk about it, but I give blood and I'm fucking petrified of needles. I hate needles. I'm so unbelievably, ridiculously petrified of needles, but I give blood because I know that's a good thing to do. And a guy was setting up to play his guitar. I gave him 50 quid and he was like, wow. Packed up his guitar and fucked off. <laughs> that, was his, that was his day. <laughs> that was like, and that felt fucking amazing. And um, there's these there's these florists that occasionally set up in the street in Peterborough. And so I went up and I had three bunches of flowers: one for my wife, one for the person who owns the florist, and one for the person behind me in the queue that doesn't know they're about to receive them. And I just pay for the three in a tip. And I just walk away with one. And those things make a massive difference. And it's only 20 quid, including a tip for three bunches of flowers. And there are only a few people alive that inspire me a lot to do things like that. And Matt Pedes is one of them. So a big round of applause for Matt. Thank you, Pete.